I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today from upstate New York is David Graham. After many years of college teaching in the Midwest, he recently retired to Glens Falls with his wife, the artist Lee Shippey. He's published seven books of poetry, and he's brought some of that poetry along to share with us today, along with some very interesting views about poetry. Then, I'll be taking a look at the just-released 2016 Vita Count. That's a project that takes an annual look at bias in publication rates in terms of who gets published and reviewed in major literary magazines across the literary landscape. Stick around. It's going to be a good one. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is David Graham. He's authored seven books of poetry, taught for a long time at Ripon College out in Wisconsin, and currently lives in Glens Falls, New York, with his wife, Lee Shippey. I'm especially happy to have David on the program because he writes the kind of poetry that uh, people would say is straightforward, tells it like it is. But if you pay attention, you notice that there's a lot of complexity lurking beneath the obvious surface. And that's the kind of poems I personally really like. So David, I'm glad to have you here to talk, read your poems and talk about poetry. Thanks very much for having me. Um, we should maybe just stop now because I love that introduction. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's a description of what I'm aiming for every time, although I don't always achieve it. So thank you. We found we have shared poetry taste and I also feel like that's a goal that I have, you know. Billy Collins once said he hates the word accessible. People talk about accessible poetry, and he would su suggest we should substitute hospitable. Oh. Uh, the uh, image of a, a, a poem is like a, a host at a party who invites you in, and then once you're in, he can do anything he wants. But uh, you got to get in. Yeah, I saw an interview where he said, something something like that like kind of don't hit them too hard in the opening lines you know don't be hostile or aggressive just be kind of mellow and and then go where you're going to go yeah it's really interesting uh to hear him say that my poems have, have grown a lot more hospitable to use that word over the years i think a lot of young poets start and they're trying to earn their, you know, poetry merit badge or something. And so they're obscure and they're, they're uh, very indirect and all that. And older I get, the less interested in that I become, I suppose. Also years of teaching where, you know, it was my job to, to get people to understand and hopefully appreciate literature uh, influenced me as much as anything else. Uh, in, in that sort of drift toward uh, hospitality. I think I'm going to keep that hospitality concept. That is really a good way to describe it. But why, why don't you read one of your hospitable poems? <laughs> okay. Um, I think I'd like to start with a poem uh, I wrote on my birthday at, when I turned 58, which was a few years ago. And uh, people who know us know my wife and I were born on the same day, same year. And so our birthday is kind of an important, uh, important day. And a number of years ago, I started uh, 
having the idea I should write a birthday poem every year. Hmm. And I've pretty much done that, but most of them are junk. And uh, every now and then, every few years, I get one that I want to keep. And uh, this is one of my favorites. So uh, obviously, I wrote it at age 58. At 58. On my birthday, I want nothing but more of everything. More damn snow, more coffee jitters, more wind fluting down the chimney insanely, more news to sigh and shake my head over. I want a little salt and pepper to taste, more if I feel like it. More walks in the woods with my lifetime love, counting deer as the owl counts us. More time than a dog has, more than we need or deserve, more than I deserve, certainly. Yes. And when the larder is full, the bed brimful with easy flow, air electric with all air brings, and every sign on the road leads to repletion and plenty and copious fullness, then, then I say more. I say more. What got you started on that poem? Well, I, I write every day, and I've done that for quite a number of years. And so some days it's just snatching a word or writing a title in my journal or um, very often looking out the window. Oh, there's a squirrel and I'm off. Uh, but this was, of course, my birthday. And so I wrote uh, probably, I don't remember exactly, probably wrote at the top of the page at 58. Okay, what shall I say? And then just free associated, what do I want for my birthday? Oddly enough, since we're born on the same day, my wife and I never make a fuss about giving each other gifts or any of things like that. So uh, very often a poem is the gift. And, and in many ways, the, the relationship is the real gift, I suppose. And so the poem was an improvisation, just, um, you know, what do I want for my birthday, I suppose. And, and in a way, it's a disguised list poem. Because it lists the more, I want more of this, I want more of that. And not phrased like a typical list poem, of course. And I could also, if I project at 58, it's a good time to think, I want a lot more years. Yeah, yeah. I, that's, that's right. Like I said, that's me projecting anyway. <laughs> yeah, and uh, now, of course, uh, I look back and think, boy, that, was, uh, that wasn't yesterday. <laughs> I'm getting older. That's interesting. That giving yourself an assignment, that's, I, I was, I'm surprised sometimes that me, giving myself an assignment sometimes really works. Yeah. I, I kind of almost don't expect it to, but it, sometimes it really does. For me, the key is to write every day, but not to worry too much about it. And what that means in practice is a lot of days I write stuff and never look at it again, never think about it, but it's still valuable to me. Um, I suppose this sounds awfully fancy, but it's like a meditative practice or something. Uh, and the point is not to write a great poem, though I am delighted if that were to happen. The po point is to really kind of look at my world and think about what's happening and see what's going on inside as well as out. And um, that's what it's for, ultimately. So the fact that I write a lot of uh, unfinished poems or poems that aren't very good doesn't mean anything. There's always tomorrow. I'm right. always looking forward. Uh, 
and and uh, I'm pleased when something seems to gel and uh, lead somewhere. So as far as exercises go, boy, when you write every day, you run you run out of new themes pretty quickly. And so I often give myself dumb little exercises or projects and just see what happens. Like, oh, yeah. see if I can write a poem without verbs, which is dumb. I mean, verbs, you need verbs. <laughs> but every now and then I'll try that and see what happens. Well, that's a good idea. I'll have to try that. Do you know uh, that wonderful uh, passage from Robert Frost where he says, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. Mm. That really hit me. And I think, yeah, that's... That's my goal pretty much every time to see if I can surprise myself. I love it when, when writing and in the middle of writing, a phrase comes out and you write it down, but it wasn't, doesn't seem that it was conscious. Yeah. It just yeah. came. And, and that, as you're saying, sometimes it makes sense and sometimes it's nonsense and, and not more useful, but it's interesting. Right. Yeah. And I'll often grab a phrase that I overhear or that someone else says and, just riff on it, maybe. Yeah. Uh, I have a great niece who's uh, wonderfully inventive. And this summer, she looked at me one time and said, uh, said something that I wrote down, of course. She said, how do you laugh in English? And I haven't written that poem yet, but I will. At some point when I'm ready, uh, I yeah. got to do something with that one. Yeah, the idea itself is too good. Yeah, it reminds me of one of those Neruda question poems. Let, let's hear another poem. Let me, uh, let me read one a little sadder, uh, I guess. Um, my father died uh, 10 years ago after a long uh, experience with dementia. And so, as you would expect, I wrote a great many poems uh, about the dementia and about the changes and the sadness of that. Um, here's one that that came kind of recently and doesn't really mention dementia. Um, but it's just a look at him back at that moment when he was starting to show the effects but hadn't been diagnosed yet. Um, and I think it's self-explanatory, but the title is, My Father, Never Late for Anything in Life, Finally Slows. If there were heaven, this would be limbo. He's puttering through the kitchen, making noise, not in anger or joy, just a trifle klutzy with the toaster, knocking against a chair, struggling to unstick a sweet jar lid. He's early as always, still a little too soon for leaving. So he shuffles around, putting magazines in squared piles, sorting through the junk drawer, testing several pens for ink. Soon he will sweep the car keys with a sigh from their nail, then pat his hip pocket twice for the bulge of wallet, and finally swing wide the door, letting in a swoop of winter air, then fumbling with the dog, who escapes between his legs, a scene that might be funny if he smiled. By the time he retrieves the pup and is ready to go again, he is no longer early at all. Yeah, that, that's another one. It, it's well, you know what you're doing there. It's the old show, don't tell. Ah, uh, yeah. I'd say you know, and that's perhaps what's what's so strong about the poem describes it. Doesn't say dementia, 
I've read, written so many poems about his dementia and eventually I'd like to put this in a collection with some others. So uh, I guess if I thought about it at all, I thought that the context would explain it. But otherwise, when I was asked uh, to send you some poems, I sent this one without rereading it. And, and I thought of it as a dementia poem. And when I looked at it, you know, last night, I thought, wow, it doesn't even mention it. Yeah. And it wouldn't necessarily know uh, the full story. I hope right. it works anyway, just as, you know, we get old and we change and slow down and all that. Uh, and it's a hard thing to see. In yeah. Your own parent. yeah, well, that's, a, that's definitely there, if not specifically dementia. You know, just the getting older and getting a little less adept at things. How about um, how about that longer poem? This one uh, I wrote actually on the Fourth of July a number of years ago, oh. because uh, I realized that a lot of uh, poems that I've written that that sort of edge into political territory are fairly sharp and critical uh, of of various. Uh, various things in our political realm. And I don't write a, a great many political poems, but it was 4th of July and I just, again, I had that idea that popped into my head as an exercise. I thought, I wonder if I could write a patriotic poem, a poem that was truly patriotic without irony. Um, and I don't know, I don't know how one would describe this ultimately, but that was my intention. So I slept on the uh, a journal, the title "Why I Love America," and just started, started kind of riffing. So here it is: "Why I Love America." Like America, I love having reasons I don't need. Like I love the smell of American bubble gum, and the imperial amazement of interstates. We invented interstates, world. And of course, I love blues and jazz and. Charles Ives with his crazy fedora, not to mention Abe Lincoln and Hank Williams. We invented Abe and Hank. I love how we take everybody in and make them America, if need be, from Charlie Chaplin to Bob Hope and Neil Young. And we have the best Cary Grants in the world. I love how even when I'm not paying attention, baseball is being played, seriously, in America, played by Dominican, Japanese, and Cuban guys. The world is nuts about our baseball. Needless to say, I adore bluegrass and pale, watery beer, wine by the tanker truck bound for every supermarket, wine so cheap even I can pretend to be a snob. The only country where Bob Dylan and Johnny Cash could get famous and rich as singers. We like scruffy, ragged, whiny voices in America, kind of scratchy voice Whitman had. I love skateboards, Motown, self-serve gas, the Outer Banks, and a certain mountain valley in Virginia, filling at dusk with fireflies. Did we have fireflies in Egypt, Mexico? I love the Constitution, Niagara Falls, the Tappan Zee, Macintoshes, whether fruit or computer. Dolly Parton, Huck Finn, put Dolly anywhere else, she'd vanish. I love that Ben Franklin invented the glasses I'm wearing, that he'd started a lending library, and even now, 
appears on the $100 bill. And isn't it great how we can call him Ben? You may wonder just how sappy I can get. If there's anything I don't love about America, then I will probably just stare back at you from under my baseball cap, wondering if I'm truly a sap? Well, you're an idiot for asking. The answer is, of course I'm a sap, you idiot. But I hate America just as much as you. Granddad America spouting racist nonsense. And there's little need as I see it to keep enumerating Hiroshima and Wounded Knee as if that's all. But anyway, it's all being swept down the big money along with Ty Cobb and Scott Joplin and even old Andrew Carnegie, that heartless, penny-pinching Scott that America transformed into a philanthropist at the end. Thank you, Andrew, for my hometown library. So thank you, America, for being big enough to take in all praise and all blame without filling up. As the Mississippi and Hudson run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. That's a mouthful to, to read aloud. Uh, yeah, that would go over very well at a reading. Have you read it at a reading? Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah I would think it goes over really well. Again, it's got that it's got that accessibility, and people just roll along with what's happening. But it's really saying something. I think uh, probably the poet I return to the most is Walt Whitman, and uh, I have a tendency to kind of run into those long catalogs, and uh, and uh, I, I just love the the way you can work up ahead of steam and, and see what happens. Oh, there are a couple of Ferlinghetti's that this reminds me of too. You know, sitting outside of Mike's place, watching the world go by in its curious shoes. And he goes on and on about being a Boy Scout and blah, blah, blah. I delivered the paper and there's a bunch of Americana. Early poem is I love called Just Dog. And the dog is walking down the street. And it's in the street. From the dog's perspective. Right. Uh, I'd love to, to hear that yeah. out loud as well. Anyway, well, good. I'm glad we, we got that in there. I thought it was good. I'm always, always hesitant with long poems when we're just audio only. People don't have that extra stimulation of the reading of seeing the poet, but it's just it's just a really interesting poem. And That's a thank you. That's another feature it. of getting older for me. Um, Donald Hall said somewhere that when he was young, he would find old classic works uh, length tedious. But now that he's older, he finds the length a luxury. Uh, he's mm. into, you know, Charles Dickens or George Eliot or whatever it might be, yeah. and, and just relish it. Um, and I hope that's true of me, too. Not as impatient as I was when I was 20. I'm slightly less impatient. I'm not sure how much, but what, what else would you like to do then? I, I, I'd like to read this one called The Green Man. Um, mm -hmm. As you mentioned in your intro, uh, I recently moved uh, to Glens Falls, uh, New York, uh, after 30 years in Wisconsin. But I'm an upstate New York guy, and, and in many ways it feels like coming home. So uh, with the uh, chaos of the move, of course, it took a while for me to get my feet under me in, in writing. Uh, and this was the first poem that I felt was a keeper once I arrived here. Um, I, I love walking in the woods and, and this one, uh, we ha happen to have a wonderful uh, woods right near us. 
And I was walking my dog there uh, and uh, saw this amazing uh, formation. It was a burrow on the side of a tree that, that formed a face when you, when you oh. caught it at the right angle. So this is the poem that, that I wrote called The Green Man. Um, as I, I guess probably everyone knows, The Green Man is a kind of a figure from mythology and folklore pretty much in every culture of this, this uh, sort of half deity, I suppose, uh, you know, the emanation of the earth uh, and vegetation and so forth. Anyway, the green man. He's never facing the path. You have to break through some thorny bushes, reaching into the open sunlight and enter the cool, ferny dimness beyond. We'll step over an almost soft, fallen beach stumble up a slope thick with roots to find his rancorous face peering out from the gnarled bark of an oak. He's not glad to see you because he doesn't see you any more than the stream sees its stony bed with a doe regards a worm beneath her hooves. The green man has been here longer than God. And if you say that's impossible, I won't argue. You're right. But it's still true. <laughs> that last line is a bit of a surprise. It's nice throwing in that, that contradiction. Was a surprise to me too. Uh, I mean, I really didn't see that coming when I was writing. Often, that's how I know the poem is is over when I'm drafting something. Uh, a line will pop out, and I'll look at it, and I'll think, "Where the heck did that come from?" And uh, then I realize I'm not sure, but I kind of like it, and I think that's my ending. I'm remembering something an old friend once told me. Uh, he described some anthropologists who went to the west of Ireland and were interviewing people about uh, religion and mythology and so on. And one time they asked an old, old woman about leprechauns. And the question was, you don't believe in leprechauns, do you? And her answer was, well, of course not. But they're there. <laughs> And I think that was in the back of my mind. I've always remembered. Yeah. I love that that answer, which seems yeah. to me a very poetic answer. Of course, I don't believe in it, but they're there. They're out there. <laughs> that is, yeah, that's really good. And that's just the parallel to what you put here at the end on this one. Yeah. Whoa. Well, I think we have time for you to read Tim, if you would, which I think okay. really fits with what I was saying at the beginning uh, about your poetry, seemingly uh, straightforward and right there. But then there's this little something at the end. In fact, I still don't know if, I don't know if you're going back to your old hometown or not. Well, you uh, intended that you succeeded. You maybe not, but you could be the way it's done, you know. I often have, uh, living a thousand miles away from, from my home ground for 30 years, Yeah, there was a lot of driving back and forth to see family over those years. And uh, I often would feel like in any little town I would happen to be in, wow, this is just like my hometown. Yeah. Even though it's not. Uh, and, and I would almost expect to see someone I knew. Anyway, this, this is just called Tim. These faded little towns you drive through in Georgia, Ohio, Minnesota, the hills of Western Pennsylvania, upstate New York, everyone looks about the same to you with its seedy auto body shop, 
full graveyard, its three churches and seven bars, not to mention the shuttered department store, big old houses that have seen better days, and vacant lots where something or other burned down years ago, but the scent of soot still rises after every rain or snow. But you know, if you just coasted to a stop in front of the 7-Eleven, got out of your car and strolled the three-block main street, you begin to notice things. Three-legged white cat scampering up some porch steps. The sign over the Riverview Diner when light hits it just so, revealing it used to be the Majestic. Skinny boy in his driveway practicing layups, most beautiful shots you've ever seen. Then some guy with the name of Tim, embroidered in red on his work shirt, looking and looking at you in the Walgreens where you've stopped for some aspirin and a soda. He's staring so hard because surely you remind him of someone he went to school with and hasn't seen in 45 years. Moved to Texas, he heard. But after all this time, who knows? He's trying to decide whether or not to greet you with your old name while you ponder whether or not you'll accept it or just shake your head and turn away. The ambiguity of the end was deliberate on my part. Yeah. I didn't want to declare whether or not I really was in my hometown or just in a parallel one. Yeah, which, which was an ambiguity that I enjoyed. And I didn't think of it at first. I'm like, wait a minute now. Is this his old town or is it really just like his, like so many of them, it's like his old hometown? It could so, be. Yeah. Succeeded with me anyway. So that's really great. Well, this has been really wonderful. I'm glad you had uh, the time and the poems to do this. Yeah, uh, Thank you. Folks, we've been visiting with David Graham from Glens Falls, New York. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter. You're listening to Poetry Spoken Here. We've been visiting with David Graham from upstate New York. Now I'd like to take a look at the Vita Count for 2016. The Vita Count is a volunteer effort to document biases in publication rates across the literary landscape. Vita volunteers track the gender of bylines, book reviews, and reviews in major literary publications. The 2016 count was recently released and indicates what you might expect. The numbers favor heterosexual white males. You'll have to read the report for the details as it goes into specifics with percentages of increases and decreases of major publications like the New York Review of Books, the Atlantic Nation, Poetry. Uh, but what I want to do here is to share an excerpt from the extraordinary introduction to the report which is bylined Amy King, Editor-in-Chief of Vita Review, and Sarah Clark, Assistant Editor of Vita Review. So here are some parts of this, which I hope will entice you to want to go to the report, read the whole introduction, and see what the statistics are for 2016. We find ourselves in the midst of an unabashed war on women, alongside the systematic erasure of non-binary and trans people. We feel like a country divided because we no longer are able to hide our allegiances behind Southern politeness or recede unscathed into the passive shadows. Very few can now witness the injustices in this country and claim to have, quote, no opinion. 
privilege is no longer a viable cover. You are either for atrocities and injustices in this country, or you resist and speak out against them. Yes, the country is divided. Telling anyone not to speak on these issues because they are, quote, divisive, has become a transparent attempt to keep those injustices invisible and acceptable. But a call for silence is no longer an option. We are well beyond that point. Vita has written before about the staggering effect of implicit bias on publishing. We are now facing state-sponsored propaganda that is anti-woman, anti-LGBTQ, anti-black, anti-POC, anti-immigrant, and anti-disability. State-sponsored messages that not only center the white, cis, hetero, able-bodied patriarchy, but increasingly position it as the only America that matters. Amy Siskind, journalist and president of The New Agenda, has written that experts in authoritarianism advise to keep a list of things subtly changing around you so you'll remember. Her weekly lists have become invaluable documents. It's no longer possible to support lies that women are equally represented in publishing the way men are, or, most insidiously, that men are just writing better. The Vita count is a work in process, is heavily reliant on self-identification. We're learning and we're listening. It's vital we continue to expand our inquiries and document marginalized people who are left out of the broader literary discourse, who are routinely denied publication at exceedingly high rates compared to the favored demographic of straight white men. To that end, Vita will continue to shine a light exposing publishers' biased publication rates so that discrimination might be more than just a feeling that writers, educators, and consumers might hold those publishers accountable for their omissions. There's more, and they conclude noting that the project could not happen without the many volunteers donating many, many hours, time, energy, and devotion to this social justice project. And we are grateful for the voices of the volunteers, and we applaud those who work to create an equitable, welcoming literary landscape for everyone. That's Vita, the Vita Count, something to know about, something to check out, something to go and read. I'm Charlie Rossiter. This has been Poetry Spoken Here. Join us again next time to let poetry speak. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com. <laughs>